welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Sarah McDooling, and I'm incredibly excited to be talking today with the ever-amazing Clementine Ford about her new book, How We Love Notes on a Life. Clementine, thanks so much for joining us today. It is my absolute pleasure to be here and to see you again, Sarah, as well. Oh, be still my heart. <laughs> um, for all the people listening, before we launch into things, can you just tell them a little bit about How We Love and what they can expect from this new book? Well, what they can expect is probably not what they're expecting if they're familiar with my first two books, even if, well, especially if they've not even read my first two books and they have a particular impression of me, then How We Love hopefully will subvert everything that they think they know. It's it's a much more introspective book than my first two. As I say in the introduction, there is no research involved in this book at all, save for the excavation of my own life. It's a very deeply personal um, I mean, it's a memoir, but it's a collection of essays, really. It doesn't follow a linear structure and it's, it's not telling a story about my life per se. It's telling a story about the lives that we live and the love that we have in all of these different, um, and the way that it manifests in all these diff- different aspects. And I say lives multiple because, of course, we do have multiple lives and there are multiple possibilities. As I say in the first chapter about my mother, we all have infinite possibilities for how our lives can turn out. And in the end, at the end of a life, we just have a collection of notes. And so these are some of my notes. Uh, You've already touched on my next question, which was what it was like for you writing something that is perhaps not what people would expect. I mean, it is quite different Mm. from your you know when I went into it I anticipated it being a lot easier than it turned out being and one of the reasons why I really wanted to write this book I actually pitched it before the pandemic but it ended up being quite um having some synchronicity with the themes of the pandemic you know isolation loneliness reflection the need for human connection um and the ways that love makes itself necessary in our lives and not just you know as I sort of take pains to stress in the book this is and and in um discussing the book it's not a typical kind of book about romantic love it's not a collection of stories about all the different people I've been in relationships with although there are some stories about that in the book because I really think that the way that we talk about love prioritizes this idea of romance as being something that is you know, the most necessary love that we have. And of course, it's not even the first experience of love we have. The first experience of love we have is that that comes from our mother. Now, I know that that's not true for many people. Some people have terrible relationships, but I'm speaking generally, you know, that the first experience of love that we have is not at all romantic in nature. And we experience so many different forms of love before that kind of love makes itself known in our lives and we we have to value all of them because all of them make us who we are so I knew that I wanted to write about love and one of the reasons I wanted to write about love was because you know the first two books were very um I mean other people would describe them as using various words um, galvanizing is something that I think those first two books were. They were also distressing in many ways. I mean, they were books that reflected the misogyny of the society that we live in. And I wanted something that 
could remind me, I wanted to delve into a topic that would remind me why it's so important to fight against those things. And in that respect, how we love is actually a perfect, um, you know, follow up to those first two books because without having a deep connection to love and without having a deep appreciation for love in, in all of its forms and the necessity of love in our life to bring us not just happiness, but to bring us some sense of humanity, mm. you can't really go out and fight every day to change the world as it is and to, and to change things like misogynist structures and to challenge men's violence against women, unless you come from a place of love. People make the mistake with me that they think that I come from a place of hate, but I'm very much driven by from a place of love. And this was a perfect way to kind of explore what love means to me, how love has, has presented itself in my life and remind me of why it's so important. I, everything you say fires off a million other different questions that I want to ask. So I have to choose my next question, you know, really carefully, but. I have a terrible you, tendency as well to really deviate from the subject matter. So I apologize for that. No, you just, look, the, this book came to me at a time when I felt like I really, really needed it. I found it to be a deeply relatable book. Um, and I felt like reading your reflections on your life, particularly like the kindness and acceptance you have for all the past versions of yourself and the appreciation you have for all the different kinds of love um, that life has to offer really made me reassess a lot of things about my life and the way I have perceived my past and present. Mm. In particular, you write really tenderly and beautifully about your mother and there is a passage that has really stayed with me on the subject of grief would you mind if I just read out I would love to hear it I'd love to know what resonated with you okay okay. that's a huge gift for any author to hear that oh you I underlined so many um, passages in this book thank you but this is one that has just you know when an idea really percolates in your mind and you sort of feel that it is changing the way that you think. Yeah. And this one really did. And so um, the passage is, uh, you write, grief is a rushing river that in time delivers us to the sea. We never escape it, but soon enough the rapids give way to gentle waves. In that great body of water, we can see that we are part of something bigger. Call it heaven if you like, call it the universe, call it magic. I choose to call it love. (laughs) You've made me (laughs) cry with my words. I'm getting a lump in my throat. So, like, I think the reason this touched me so deeply is that thinking about grief as something that's kind of uh, inextricably connected to love and hope Mm. and realising that they sort of can't exist without each other is strangely comforting, Mm. as well as the idea that that sorrow and suffering, however it ends up coming into your life, you know, will come into your life. And it's something Mm. really universal that sort of connects you to humanity. I've done this thing again where I haven't really asked a question. I'm just talking about what I really, no, <laughs> I really love about the book. But. It's great. But, I mean, I think that that is, you know, there's a real motif through the book that wasn't necessarily deliberate. I mean, I certainly didn't plan for it, but I, I do love a metaphor. And there's a real motif of water throughout the book. And, and um you know, I write about bodies of water and in the chapter about my son, which is sort of so inextricably linked to the chapter about my mother as well. And it's interesting that they bookend the book. Yes. Um, 
that, you know, I, I talk about the love that I have for my son, realizing that I can't be what drags him beneath the waves, but I have to be the water itself. I have to be the water that carries him to shore for the time when he needs to leave me, which surely he must, he, he one day, he one day must do. And this being the, the grief of loving a child that your job is to make yourself, as my friend Catherine Devaney says, your job is to make yourself redundant. You know, that the, it's the only love I say in the chapter, it's the only love that we set out to have where the purpose is to one day have it leave us. Oh. And, and that, you know, writing about yourself, the, the love of a mother needing to be the water itself is saying that the love of a mother needs to be that pure love that doesn't, doesn't hold anyone back, you know, that doesn't, doesn't try and consume it, but, but carries it, you know, carries mm. the child to shore. And, you know, there's another chapter where I'm, I'm writing about a, a sort of a heartbreak, the tediousness of heartbreak that, you know, I had sort of had my heart broken a couple of years ago and um, it, it being necessary to go through. I mean, it wasn't a terrible grief, but it was, it was that tedious kind of obsessive grief that we've probably all had at least one experience of where you just can't, you know that there's light on the other side of it, but you just have to make your way towards it and you have to go through the trudging swamplands of it while you're getting there. Um, and I kind of visualise myself at the end of this chapter standing on a beach and watching the waves come towards me and watching them bring all of these different possibilities of life and having finally gotten over this person, understanding, standing there, standing on their own shore somewhere and experiencing their own haunted siren song. But that realizing that I, you know, I was out of the tempest of it, it came as a moment where I suddenly looked up to realize that the tide had receded. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of metaphor of water and rushing rivers and bodies of still calm water. And, and I, like I said, I don't think that that was deliberate, but it's just something that um, resonates a lot with me. The idea of water as a restorative force. Um, but yes, that, that realizing that, you know, the, inextricable link between grief and love. And I think it's, I think it was in one division actually, that there was a line where oh my gosh, yes. like grief is proof that we have loved or something like oh, that. Oh no, wait, I can remember it. I didn't make this connection, but yeah, the world went mad over that line. It was, um, if you can, if I grief, but the persistent love persisting. Well, what is grief, but, but love persisting or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, you know, I really feel like it's, it's interesting because as a writer, of course, every, everything becomes subject to excavation. And in some ways that can be, um, in some way that, ways that can be quite torturous because you're always kind of looking internally and you're always examining your own um, experiences. And, and also, obviously, it can be very egocentric. Um, <laughs> and self-obsessive. But at the same time, I think that having that ability to assess things from a writer's perspective really gives you a kind of perspective, sorry, really gives you a, an opportunity to be quite Zen about things. Mm. Um, you know, obviously when my, my, my mother died when I was 25 and 25, 26, you forget the details, you know, I think I was 25. Um, and my mother died of cancer and it was a sh sort of a shortish battle, really eight months. 
And at the time, obviously I was consumed by grief. Um, you know, I found it very anxiety inducing to, I remember I write about in the book, I write about coming home from her funeral, which was a very strange affair because my father wouldn't let anyone come to it except for the immediate, immediate, immediate family, i.e. her children, him and my grandmother, and no one else was allowed to come. And I suppose that was his way of managing his own grief. You know, he, he, for better or worse, probably feels like he needs to be strong. Um, well, that is for worse, toxic masculinity. Um, uh-huh. Toxic masculinity wields its sword again. <laughs> um, so he came home from this very strange fun- funereal affair and I lay down on her bed and I could still smell her on the pillow. And I remember just crying. And, you know, I say in the book that I didn't think that there were any more tears that could come, but then suddenly all, all they, they were there again, you know, a fresh new well of them. Um, and I remember thinking really thinking for the first moment it being clear to me because she was cremated. So I knew that her body had already entered the incinerator, that that was it. Her body was gone. And I had this very childlike sense. Well, where did her body go? You know, and obviously, I mean, whatever people choose to believe it was, it wasn't as, it wasn't as spiritual as thinking, where did her body go cosmically or in the cosmos? It was, it was literally like, how can someone exist and then not exist? And mm-hmm. I remember feeling this terrible anxiety over this mother shaped hole in my life. Um, but, you know, much the same way as tedious, obsessive love must be gotten over. So to does grief, even for the people we love the most, it, it, it is walked through and it's a journey that leaves its own scars but it's something that can be instructive as well. And I feel now the, the way that the lessons that I learned from losing my mother so young and from being a motherless mother myself have been hard in many ways, but they've also been really fortifying. Mm. And the other thing that I think of a lot is, you know, consequences and how, you know, I mentioned before that we all have infinite possibilities for our lives and the different sliding door moments that take us from one, one section of our life to the next. And there's a real kind of um, melancholy. It's, it's both melancholy. It's a bittersweet, I suppose, is what the word I'm looking for. A bittersweet reality to the fact that one of the biggest griefs that I have now is that my mother never got to meet her grandson because she would have adored him. I mean, he's just very precious, but she always wanted to be a grandmother. And I think in lots of ways, she was a pretty troubled woman because of her own upbringing. And I think in lots of ways, she would have made a better grandmother than a mother. And that's probably true for a lot of women, particularly those who grew up in a certain generation. Um, But obviously that was not meant to be. But the other thing is that that's not something that could have been. If my mother hadn't died, my life would have taken on a completely different course. I wouldn't be sitting where I am today. I wouldn't have written the books that I've written. I may have written completely different things. I may have written nothing at all. But one thing I know for certain is that I wouldn't have my son because none of the events that the millions and millions of tiny little decisions, billions that conspired to get me exactly to the point where my son was created wouldn't have happened. So there's something quite comforting when you kind of, when you've when you've grappled with grief early on and you've come to terms with it and you've come to terms with what it can tell you about your life and what it can deliver to you as well as take from you there's something quite comforting about seeing i suppose you know going back to that water metaphor seeing your life 
not as something that exists in a linear way, but something that is tidal, that things leave us and they come back to us and it doesn't matter because the tide is always moving and what, what we get rid of, we can grieve for, but there are other things that are coming to us that will, we wouldn't have had otherwise. That is, uh, I could just listen to you talk about the book. It's, it's like reading the book. Re- reading this book felt like a really long, beautiful kind of conversation with you. Obviously, like, mm. uh, mostly because it's so thought-provoking. So your words, you know, feel like, you know, the way that you write feels very personal and intimate. And, um, and it sparks off a million different thoughts in your head. So it does, it feels like a conversation because you take so much away from it. Um, one thing that kind of struck me as well is that through the book, it often felt as though the act of writing it was leading you to discoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to just sort of ask you about that. For, for example, um, I felt it a lot. You write really poignantly about a, a friend of yours and a friendship that at one time had the potential to be something more, but it ended up remaining platonic. And it really made me think a lot about friendship mm-hmm. and how it is, as you mentioned earlier, it's often like not as valued. We, we idolise romantic love and family, like rightly so, because they're important. But in a way, they seem to carry more weight with people than platonic mm. friendship. Meanwhile, your friendships can often end up being amongst the most long-lasting and rewarding connections that you have. So, mm. like, you gave me a lot of food for thought on that topic in your book and reading it kind of felt like you were discovering things as you wrote it. And I wanted to ask if that is true. And so basically a long way of me of asking, was writing this book a discovery process for you and what you learned about friendship and romance and family while writing it? It's mm, a great question. Um, and firstly, I'll say thank you. I'm so glad that while you were reading it, you felt, you know, <laughs> like we were having a conversation, but also that it provoked all these thoughts because one of the anxieties I have, um, you know, and it's, it's, partly to do with my, uh, as I said, you know, the reputation that precedes me with some people, but I suppose I have some imposter syndrome or some anxiety about um, quote unquote proving that I can be a deeply reflective and thoughtful writer as well, because um, it's, it can be sort of one of my kind of like little childish wounds is not feeling good enough, you know, and thinking that that I guess just that sort of sense of wanting to prove that you can write something beautiful, I suppose. And, and it, I really appreciate that you felt like it was very, you know, it's that it sparked all those thoughts because it feels like maybe I did do my job. Um, I did, you know, the thing about platonic friendship is I don't think that it's just that it can be just as important as romance and familial love. I think that for many women in particular, platonic friendships are the defining relationships of our lives. Particularly if you, you know, particularly when you are at a point where you can truly be seen and known by another person. And this is something I talk about in the book as well, that the act of loving and the importance that love has in our lives very often is to do with wanting to be seen and to be known 
we want to leave some kind of legacy, whether or not that's just a legacy in the memory of the people who've known us, but, but we also want to be known. And, and I don't mean, you know, in a simplistic way, I mean, stand in front of someone metaphorically naked and be known by them and be understood that we were here. You know, it's that classic kind of like thousands of years old graffiti. I was here. That's what Mm. we want. We want people to know that we were here. And I think that the fixation that we have on romantic love, firstly, is very recent historically. I mean, for women in particular, romantic love, I'm not saying romantic love is a recent invention, but the idea that romantic love would be the singular focus of our lives and the singular goal of our life is very recent. Um, And uh, sorry, just cut cut this pause out because I just lost my train of thought for a second. it's a very recent invention and actually for women in particular who are still battling sexism and who are still battling the impacts that, you know, inequality really wreaks on our lives. And I mean, from the sort of benign kind of, well, it's not really benign, but the, the more sort of insidious domestic inequality to the actual risk of violence that we face in our lives that we, and that we endure in our lives, having other women around who know us and who, who we can know in that sense of we were here and we experienced it together and, and you just saw what I just saw. It's very mm. affirming and very reassuring for us in terms of being able to see and know ourselves. So having platonic friendships with women that carry us through the difficulties and the hardships of our lives and celebrate the joys and the wins is profoundly important. And I think that one of the reasons why it's not given so much value is because if we truly celebrated how important and necessary it is to our lives. We might spend a little bit less time fixating on finding men to pick us and love us. Now that's where the feminist part of the book comes in, I guess. Um, <laughs> but you know, the thing, the thing about platonic love as well is that as I say in the, in that chapter that you're talking about, you know, I'm writing about, she's, she's got a pseudonym in the book. Um, and I, so I'll use that here. I'm writing about my friend, quote unquote, Billy. Um, we did have, Um, that moment where you could decide to be something more, but I knew, I knew instinctively that it would limit in so many ways, the possibilities of where our relationship could go because romance is limiting in many ways. And I say of that, that when you close the door in the book, I say, when you close the door on romance, you turn around and you realize a whole structure of the house exists there that you didn't see before all of these new different rooms to explore that you couldn't have gained access to if you limited your relationship to just being one of romantic love. I I feel like the relationships that I will reflect on if I live to, you know, if I live to be old, which I hope I do, if I'm lucky enough to be old, the relationships I reflect on, won't solely be romantic ones. In fact, probably they'll mostly be the ones that have sustained and fulfilled me my whole life, which has been my friendships, my relationship with my child, Mm. my relationship now with my child's son, which is no longer romantic in nature, but that has in that same way opened and, uh, you know, unfurled to provide many different avenues for intimacy and, and, and platonic love. Um, it's a real shame and, and it's a loss 
that we all experience that we've allowed ourselves to see love in such limited terms and to see the importance of love in such limited terms? Oh, I just, every, I, every time you finish talking, I feel like every question I wanted to ask you was placed <laughs> with new questions. This is one I didn't intend to ask you, but, but when you were talking, you mentioned, um, you know, being known and, and being seen. And it reminded me of a passage in the book where you talk about, you know, on the other side of that coin, yeah, we, we want to be known and we seen and seen. We also want to know people. Mm. And you talk about the difference between trying really hard to know people, but maybe the difficulty of really the difference between knowing them and understanding them mm. and um, and the vulnerability that it sometimes requires. And there's a line, and I'm going to misquote it because I haven't written it down, but um, it was where you talk about the like the membrane between your exterior and interior self getting really hard mm. um, so that it becomes impenetrable for, for people to know parts of yourself. Mm. And a thing that really really struck me when I was reading it was that you sort of suggest that 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 doesn't mean that you're lonely like it just means that it's mm. a way of it's a way of living that can be comfortable and it's not necessarily all a bad thing mm. um so I don't know that was just something that popped into my head when you were talking because it was a, a, a point in the book that really I feel like we are often told you know you have to that it's healthy to like break down all your inner barriers and and perhaps like the idea that perhaps that's not always the case was intriguing to me mm. yeah I mean I think that there are parts of ourselves that we we learn to protect over a course of a life mm. and you know that there's a sort of trope in pop culture and in movies and books and, you know, this idea that somehow you need to let people in. You need to learn to break down your walls and let people in. And to a degree, I think that, you know, learning to trust someone is a huge act of faith. But do we need to let people into every single part of ourselves? I mean, there is some sense of... I think that there's something quite beautiful about and when I say beautiful I don't mean sort of in the simplistic way that we might understand that but something quite intriguing and beautiful about taking parts of ourselves through the world that no one else can see but that they you know I don't know if you have this Sarah but when you when you, you the the person who lives inside your head who is ostensibly you your higher self your id whatever that may be do you see that as being you but not you so it's you but it's also it's someone you you converse with you can have a dialogue with essentially what i'm saying is that the person you carry around inside your head who is you but not you who i write to in the book you know all these different versions of yourself that exist they're the that's maybe the most significant relationship of your life is and you know i know that sounds a little bit twee and cliche but not at all. But, I think that's what really struck me about that part of the book with you kind of suggesting that if you're good with that inner self, it's like yeah. an integrity of self. So like you don't need to shove that in people's faces and you perhaps don't need to make sure that everyone always sees it all the time because you're living there it. Can be, yeah, there can yeah. be things that you keep for yourself 
And it's not that you're keeping them from other people because you're afraid or because you're, um, you know, you're, you're being secretive or anything. But once you, if you have that, if you've begun to form that relationship with yourself and Jeanette Winterson talks about, you know, learning to make friends with herself and she visualized herself. I think it's in her book, why be happy when you can be normal. And you know, her, she's, she visualizes herself walking along with that internal kind of animalistic self and holding hands and making friends with it. And I, I don't necessarily see my internal self as that. And, and I may be misremembering Jeanette Winterson's version of it too, but I often think of myself, you know, I think of, I do a lot of inner child work and I think about myself as an old woman as well. And I think about, you know, the end of the book. So the, in the epilogue, I, I write a letter to my, to little Clementine, dear, dear little Clementine. And I talk to her about all the things that are coming in her life, all the things that she's afraid she won't have, but all the ways that her mind will change too. And I, I, oh, no, actually, sorry. It's at the end of the walking heart when I'm talking about all the different versions of me that are lined up, yeah. you know, throughout my life and the lessons that you, you're waiting to give to your younger selves when they catch up to you and the lessons that your future self is standing there waiting to give to you. Because, you know, again, with the metaphor, I don't think of my life as a linear thing, even though of course it mo- time moves in a linear fashion, but does it, we don't know. We don't know. We could be moving that way, but I think instead of what I found really helpful in my life is to think of everything happening at exactly the same time, but with all these different kind of like experiences and lessons. So the, this idea that somehow I, at this point in my life as a 40 year old woman, there is another 85 year old version of me existing at this exact point that I'm existing. But at some point I will become the 85 year old woman and I will learn everything that she knows. She's yeah. waiting there to give me all that she knows in the same way that I stand here as a 40 year old woman looking back at my 15 year old self and not only waiting for her to arrive at this point in time so that I can say you've made it well done. But also, as I say in the book, I can thank her because we make the mistake of thinking that our strength increases as we get older. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm a pretty strong 40 year old woman, but I'm not strong because me, the 40-year-old woman is strong. I'm strong because when I was smaller and more vulnerable and more, you know, I, I had a thinner membrane maybe between those parts of myself as you were talking about and more faith and more optimism that had yet to sort of be crushed a little bit or whatever, I, I survived. We all survived. You know, we survive the hardest things that happen to us. We survive the most benign things that happen to us, but that feel crushing at the time. And a a 15 year old girl going through heartbreak and, you know, humiliation at her high school formal to me as a 40 year old, whatever, like roll my eyes at that. (laughs) That doesn't, that makes her stronger than me because she went through it at a time in her life where she was less equipped to handle it. And she still came out the other side and she, all of those different versions of myself, all those different versions of yourself, Sarah, they picked up tools and lessons and 
you know, shields along the way that brought them here to who we are and where we stand at this point in our life. And so all we can do is look back and thank them. And that's that, part of the love that we have for ourselves as well. And that's what chimes through the book so prominently is, you know, you do talk about all the different loves that you've experienced for other people, but what really shines through is the love and acceptance that you have for all of your past versions. Um, and it got me thinking, you know, I, am, I have a terrible memory. I don't know if it's that I've, you know, don't want to remember being young or that I just am terrible at remembering things. But when I was reading, it takes reading something to sort of unlock those memories for me. And mm. so reading the chapters that you wrote about being young and being a teenager and um, everything came through so strongly, like there's such a kind of um, raw angst and confusion and tender sort of like we walk around as teenagers, like exposed nerves and everything's heightened. Mm. And that came through so, so strongly in the book. And it did sort of fire off whatever neural pathways lead me to my teen years. And I started remembering all of this stuff that I haven't thought about in ages. So I just wondered, you talk about this was kind of a bit of an excavation of your life. Like how do you just have a really good memory or how do you go about that excavating? What do you have to do to sort of dredge up those feelings again? Well, firstly, I really love that term, you know, walking around as a bunch of <laughs> exposed nerves. That's such a good way of putting it. Um, uh, do I have a good memory? So at the very end of the introduction, I say, I write, this is a book about life and all the ways we can be broken and pieced back together. It is a book about my life, which may in some places look an awful lot like yours. I am almost certain all of it is true. Because how can we know if memory is true or not? I mean, memory is such a funny thing. Everything I wrote feels true to me. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't make anything up. I mean, obviously, when you're kind of, when you're writing memoir, you make some judicial choices about whether or not to combine two events or, you know, the essential integral story is the same. Um, and of course you're re-remembering conversations. So you're putting them into conversational format in ways that probably didn't exactly happen like that, but the, the essence is there. But I mean, that's the thing, that's the fallibility of memory, isn't it? And mm. I love, I love that topic as well. And I, I didn't really go into it in this book, but um, I have an idea for, uh, you know, you always finish your, your most recent book thinking about what your next book will be. And I have an idea for a book of essays in similar fashion that I'd like to write called um, something along the lines of things we cannot explain or something, you know, where, where you're kind of exploring all of those things. Are they true or are they not? Um, memory is something that if something, if I remember something and I'm, dead set in my memory that this is the way that it happened. And this is, this is how all of the feelings that I have have been kind of constructed around it. And then you find out at some point, oh, that didn't happen like that. That's not true. What's true? Is my memory of it true? Because that's what feels true to me. That's what's informed my life. I mean, obviously you can't sort of say it's true if it impacts and implicates other people. But, you know, I think about kids who've been told, um, 
you know, they've been told a lie to soften the blow of something devastating or terrible that might've happened, you know, the loss of a family member or the loss of someone or something or why, why a marriage broke down or whatever it might be. And that is the truth that they live with. And that's the truth that informs them for, you know, all the way up until their adult life. And then sometimes those now adults find out that what they thought was true was not true at all. And it's very unsettling and it's, and it can be really destructive. And I've seen that happen to people who I love. Um, so, so really that's it kind of brings us to that question of what is truth? What is memory? What is the importance of truth when it comes to, you know, writing our own not- notes on our own lives? I don't know that in most cases, the truth is really all that important. What's important is what we feel the truth to be and how it made us feel and how, how it informed the way that we are. As I said, as you know, provided no one's being hurt, Mm. it's an interesting way to think about your conception. That's really, that's very true. And I think it's something that like, that's a balancing act all through life. Like as someone who's, you know, uh, tried to work on themselves and done a fair amount of therapy in their time. Um, the idea, well, I mean, it's a constant, it's a constant work, right? It's work. Mm. Um, but an idea that crops up often is that, you know, feelings aren't facts. Yes. They're your response to things that you perceive. And that doesn't mean that they're not hugely important because mm. how you perceive the world and react to the world is going to inform how you live. Mm. but um, trying to, you know, knowing something and feeling something is two very separate things. And um, when you, when what you know and what you feel are out of whack, like Mm. everything sort of uh, begins to crumble. Mm. But now I feel like I've gone off on a a total tangent and we have had the warning bell that we've we've gone for half an hour now. So I feel like I... I don't. Oh, I, I could I talk to you. I more, could talk to you for much longer. I, me too. I'm going to ask you another question, even though we're over time. Um, because I'm interested to know, like you, you've mentioned a few times the way that people perceive you, or the way you feel people perceive you. I'm. I know you as a, a real, a truth teller and a voice of reason. Who I like. See, I seek out your words, and trust you as. Um, someone online whose opinion I feel, you know, really matters. You're known for being a passionate feminist and it's what people admire you for, but it also puts you in the firing line of a lot of kind of poisonous internet trolls and you have to deal with a lot of negativity, like Mm -hmm. on the reverse side of that. So I just, I wanted to know um, how, A, how you deal with the negativity, but also like as a writer and a speaker, do you feel more or less pressure having your words shared you know in an article or in a video on social media versus having them written and published in a book out in the world Mm. um well i'm firstly thank you so much for saying all those beautiful things (laughs) I'm, i'm glad you feel that way that's really nice um you know it's really funny because i probably worry too much about people's perception of me um and wanting to prove them wrong. I mean, mostly I don't care whether or not people hate me, but there is that middle ground, I suppose, where I feel like, no, you're a reasonable, rational person and you've just got me wrong. 
you know, no one wants to be misunderstood. We want to be known, you know, we want to be, we want to be seen and understood, don't we? Um, I, I think that there's something in there as well about, you know, it's the infantilization of feminism as well. And of feminists that I, I I'm mostly impervious to that criticism, but I think that there's a sort of snobbery sometimes about, you know, whether or not my work is, you know, I'm really like revealing my insecurities now. There's a snobbery about whether or not my work is um, important. Yes. But is it sophisticated? Hmm. Um, And that's probably my own kind of like mm, internal. Have you read your books? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's just a sort of, I'm I'm trying to prove myself to the wrong people. Probably I'm trying to be accepted by, uh, you know, an, an intellectual kind of. I don't really. I'm, it's it's weird because I don't have any interest in being seen as a public intellectual, but the knowledge that you might not even be considered as one is is quite galling. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really have any like properly articulated thoughts on that but um I suppose what I'm what I'm trying to do is I would like I would like to be understood as someone more complex than people would would feel comfortable writing off and I think that writing me off is a mistake because I think I have a lot to offer and I think that I think that actually the I think I'm a great writer you know I do think that and I know you're not supposed to say those things about yourself but I, you know, I've been doing it for a long time. I've practiced, I'm pretty practiced at it by now. Um, and I think that the, the, the complexities that I have are more than a lot of people necessarily are interested in. Um, I don't know. Really I would argue that the, the people who don't, who don't see you as a, a complex person and also a really warm and sensitive person just haven't read enough of your work or listened to enough I think, of your you work. Know, maybe that's <laughs> it, that I, I feel like, you know, for a while it, could, it was quite sort of a good jape to be considered as this kind of like caustic shrew because I knew I wasn't a caustic shrew. So it was sort of like, well, if that's what they're going to think, then they're going to think that and there's nothing I can do about that and you could kind of like that sort of provocative way that we have when we're younger really lean into it you know well they think that I'm this so they let them think it but we all temper a little bit as we age and I'm 40 now I'm a mother I've got a five-year-old boy I'm filled my life is filled with love and softness and it doesn't mean that I can't also be you know caustic when I need to be and I can't be um, in uncompromising and uh, that I've that I've let you know, that I've kind of come to my feminist values with any less ferocity. Absolutely not. They're still the same. But I feel the need to be treated with a little bit more softness these days, mm. and that's obviously not happening. <laughs> um, and maybe my need now to be handled a little bit more kindly is more pronounced because I need kindness in my life in order to give kindness to the people I love. Mm. And, and also it becomes exhausting 
after a while being seen as the constant lightning rod. I don't always want to be the lightning rod. Um, People have this, it's a sort of, I'm not that I'm complaining or anything. I don't want, I don't want it to come across as if I'm having a, a whinge about this or anything like that, because it's been a huge privilege having a feminist voice and being seen as, as a feminist voice. But I think that sometimes people want you to be one thing and one thing only. And mm. you have to have, you have to be the one who's willing to stand on the front lines of every feminist fight. And the people, the same people who demand that of you are the ones who will turn around and blame you for doing it wrong or blame you for not getting, not, not getting there fast enough or not, you know, you kind of like, you have the, the expectation that you behave in one way and then you're blamed for behaving in that way or you're blamed for being superficial or two-dimensional when that's exactly what they wanted from you in the first place. Um, so I suppose all of those things, you know, and again, it's kind of probably one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book was because I felt the need to retreat into something a little softer. And I, and I, you know, I'm, I have a soft center to me underneath the tough exterior. I'm a very soft, squidgy person on the inside. And maybe I've found that maybe what I'm realizing right here on this zoom call (laughs) is that the years of unrelenting kind of feminist fight I thought were adding layers and layers of hide to me but maybe they were really just kind of stripping those layers away and that thin membrane or that membrane between the outer self and the inner self has become a lot thinner Mm. I don't know maybe becoming a mother has done that to me maybe the grief of realizing that, you know, my, my son's at that beautiful age now where he's still so soft and squishy and just obsessed with mum. And, but I can see him, I can see him pulling away. You know, it's like being, going back to that metaphor of being in the body of water. I can see him looking at the shore and going, what's over there? Oh, that looks exciting. You, in the book, you mentioned him saying that he only wants to hear I love you yeah. like once a day and, yep. and how obviously you're doing your job and that's something, it's a natural thing that he's no. going through, but the pain that must come oh, it's with a, that it's, independence. It's a terrible grief. And I think that, I think that that grief leaves you very raw. You know, I don't have as much, um, I don't have as much thickness to me as I did before because there's something much more important than me now. I think it's a different kind of strength. And I think that this book is really, really special because, I mean, it's very honest and open and the strength and courage to be that honest and open, I think, runs all the way through it. And... um, so, you know, in, in Pokemon terms, I guess, like it's a natural progression, right? Like you, you went from fierce fighting to like a different kind of, of fierceness. Um, Thank you. And I know we're well, well over time now, so we do unfortunately have to wrap it up. But Clementine, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's been so amazing getting this chance to chat with you. Um, Sarah, it's been my pleasure. I, I'm so glad that you loved the book and that it, prompted so many thoughts in you that's the best thing that I could have heard um you know it's a it's vulnerable writing a book anyway but particularly when you do write something that is so kind of raw and Mm. 
offering up the internal sections of your body yes. <laughs> essentially to be like to be poured over and, and scrutinized and i'm i'm so glad that it made you feel all of these things because that's exactly what i wanted it to do and i hope it, it makes really other readers did. feel those things too i i can't see how it won't and the next time you're questioning how how sophisticated your work is <laughs> maybe just flip through how we love and remind yourself of, of what you created there um Thank everyone you. listening you can grab your copy of how we love notes on a life by clementine ford as well as her wonderful previous books fight like a girl and boys will be boys oh my gosh i stumbled over the title there. <laughs> totally boys will be boys. <laughs> all of which i highly recommend at your local bookstore or online at Booktopia. thanks for listening and never stop eating Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au